Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 96 with Daniel Gritzer of Serious Eats, part one of our conversation. There was a period years ago at Serious Eats where, you know, the internet can kind of push certain impulses. Like, and so we were doing all, we were testing things rigorously. We were doing deep research, you know, more than I think is the, the average for recipe development. Doing like what I would generally, like generally very proudly say is I think good work, but you know, the impulse was to slap a lot of recipes with how to make the best this, the best that you're competing on the internet with all these other sites, you know, you've put so much work into it. You really believe in what you've done. You think you've kind of maximized in the way that were your goals for maximizing this recipe. And so why not call it the best X, Y, or Z. And, you know, in retrospect, like that's not, that's really not a great way to title anything. Even I think it's obviously there's a self-awareness that the, the best doesn't exist. And it's sort of the best is just speaking to the rigor that went into that recipe and sort of the best version that this developer thinks they, you know, came up with, but still we don't do that anymore. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 10 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. This week, I have part one of my conversation with Daniel Gritzer, culinary director at SeriousEats.com. I've been a big fan of Serious Eats and the Food Lab for a while, and love the work that Daniel, Kenji, Stella Parks, and crew have been doing there. This episode went long, like really long. Daniel and I spoke for about three hours on a Sunday night, and I have about two hours of finished audio. Because this is a show for cooking nerds, I want to leave almost everything in, so this is part one of two. We talk a lot about the process of recipe development and testing. We discuss cooking equipment, oven calibration, and the subjectivity of taste. You'll hear about the ins and outs of serious eats, and you'll learn about olive oil, polyphenols, and perceived bitterness. Ever wonder if you should or shouldn't blend olive oil in a blender? We'll get into that. A reminder that you can help support our podcast and the Chefs Without Restaurants Network by donating through our Patreon. Monthly support starts at just $5 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash chefs without restaurants to find exclusive recipes and see our tiered rewards. And thank you to this week's sponsor, Olive & Basket. With more than 30 each oils and vinegars, Olive & Basket is my go-to for specialty food items. They also have seasoning blends, sauces, jams, pasta, honeys, chocolate, gift baskets, and so much more. I don't think I've ever had anything I didn't love from their shop. Sharon and Cindy do a great job curating a wide selection of items that are loved by both professional chefs and home cooks. Located in Frederick, Maryland, their shop is at 5231 Buckystown Pike but you can also order all their products online and have them shipped directly to your house. Go to oliveandbasket.com and use discount code CHEF20 at checkout to get 20% off your order. And now, on with the show. Thanks so much for listening, 
and have a great week. Hey, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you on. Uh, you're, I guess, one of my favorite chefs and uh, recipe creators. No, take it back. <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know, it's true. Like, if I were to want to make a recipe for, like, fried chicken or something today, instead of, like, going through my books, I'd just, like, go on the internet and type, like, fried chicken, serious eats, or, like, fried chicken, the food lab or something. And this is something I've done for a number of years before I had my own personal chef business. Like, my sous chef was also a big fan. And Mike would come and he'd be like, oh, for the special tonight, I want to run whatever, you know, a meatball parm. And I found this awesome recipe on serious eats. Can we run it? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. So... We we appropriated a few of your recipes uh, back in the day. That's a, that's why they're there. You know, if somebody steals a recipe, like wholesale steals it for, for some kind of publication where it's directly competing with what we do, that's probably a small problem, but otherwise go, you know, have at it. And we would just tinker, you know, it was uh, when I was working in a retirement community and we didn't have necessarily like a, a playbook, you know, they just kind of said like, here, you've got this formal dining room and come up with some awesome stuff. And I had a lot of cooks who didn't have a lot of background and, and education and a few of them found your, your websites and info. So we, uh, yeah, better, better cooking through serious eats, I would say. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we, we, that's definitely our goal. And obviously, you know, I think any conversation of like serious eats as a recipe site, you, you have to, you know, you have to acknowledge Kenji's massive, massive contribution to the entire, you know, the ethos of it, the focus on empiricism and, you know, I'm, I'm not Kenji, but there's so much of, of his torch that I continue to carry that, you know, in my own, what I was doing before I was at Serious Seats, I had similar interests and, you know, Kenji really established his, the, the food lab and his whole thing so solidly. Um, and so the popularity of an interest in it and the success of it, I, I think it speaks for itself and it, it's clear why, you know, why, why people have taken to this kind of, you know, let's not just repeat the same thing that everyone else is saying. Let's make sure that this holds up under some level of scrutiny, sorry, scrutiny, scrutiny. And that's really, you know, I think Kenji gets so much, uh, so much of the credit for that. Um, and that's a massive part of, of the Series Seats brand to this day. The book is amazing, right? Like I would say if someone oh, yeah. wanted to just learn about cooking at, you know, from a beginner level up to like mastery of some really cool stuff, just like buy that book. I can't imagine there's anything you'd want to learn to make that you couldn't find in there. That's a amazing place to start. One of the things that blows my mind, so, like continues to blow my mind, because I was working with Kenji while he was still writing the, the original food lab book he's got more in the, you know he's published a children's book he's got a walk book coming i think his his books keep turning one book keeps turning into two books I, even the first food lab book there's like a whole other half that still needs to be published like <laughs> which is nuts when you think about it and somehow he was you know he was managing to continue to publish for series seats nonstop at at a rate that is staggering by any measure, by any measure, put aside whether you're writing a book, just try to try to do that much work, period, just for the site. And granted, like stuff work he was doing on the book was informing stuff he was doing for the site and vice versa. Like he was smart about it, 
but it's still like I cannot to this day get my head around how it's like physically possible. Um, but he, you know, he did it, and and yeah, it's I mean, <laughs> it's quite a book, and yeah, so the myth busting, the putting sort of the the um, all that old kitchen wisdom to the test uh, is such a critical critical part of what I think series seats is about and continues to be about. And, uh, it's a process too. I think that's another thing is it's not, there's no final word on anything, right? Like there's, there are things still on the site that I'm like, we should go back to that. Like we should look at that again. Like I'm even, I'm not totally convinced that we've, I recently, we, do you know, Nick Sharma? Yeah. He, uh, he's, he's, uh, a, a contributor for the site and, um, Nick has a science background and he's an amazing cook and amazing recipe. Developer, His books are fantastic. Yeah. He's, I mean, Nick is another one of these, I call them like, um, you know, food media unicorns who just like, how many talents do you have? Like how many like skill sets and knowledge bases? <laughs> and like, it's, it's nuts. Um, and, uh, uh, Nick, have been exploring this question of bitterness in certain oils, mustard oil, olive oil. I had written about it some years before I had been kind of sniffing around this question of the, you know, does blending olive oil make it bitter? And I'd kind of gotten partway there in my answer when I published something about it. Then I had had an interesting talk with a, a food scientist uh, who works in the olive oil industry who had kind of tipped me off that I hadn't fully gotten the hadn't quite gotten the whole story. And I had, I had this in my pocket for ages where it was just like, I really need to like circle back around to this thing. Like I know that I haven't, there's more to this story. This scientist who works in the olive oil industry has pretty much like filled in the blanks for me. Like I need to go back, run some tests to just confirm what this guy's telling me. And it sat in my pocket for ages. Then Nick was like, I have this, topic I want to cover about the, the science of um, oils and bitterness and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh man, you know what? <laughs> Bef- before we published what you need, I talked to him I, and it was very clear that Nick had was already, had already been on the same trail. Like he'd figured this thing out. And I was like, before we publish your thing, I need to fix my old thing, which has been on my to-do list for, you know, ages. That's almost the, you know, the science. I know we don't do like, peer-reviewed journal level (laughs) scientific studies of anything but like we keep chipping away at these things um and even there's there's lots that that we've done there's lots that kenji's done there's some stuff that i've done you know i'm not quite as science driven as kenji is in my own approach but it's a piece of what i do we're just trying to understand we're not trying to disprove everything we're not trying to have the last word on everything you know you can the temptation to get into that mindset can be strong, but I think it's important to remember, like there's probably more to a lot of this than we realize, even as we think we have explanations for all sorts of things, like continuing to refine our understanding, refine our, you know, the depth of the understanding, the limits, even just recipe developing is like, I, so it continues to fascinate me because it's like, you can completely lock a recipe in and think you have it totally figured out. Sometimes I'll circle back on a recipe sometime later and just go shopping at a different store, like one slightly different brand of ingredient, slightly different grind of meat, cook the same recipe. And it's like, it's not quite clicking. And you're like, God damn it. (laughs) There's just, there's a lot to figure out. There's a lot of nuance. And so I, you know, 
I like that though. I like that, that, that you just keep thinking about it, keep thinking about it, keep chewing on it. Like do the work ourselves, explore these things ourselves. Don't just take someone else's word for it. Don't, there's a lot of stuff in food media. That's like regurgitating other people's oh, yeah. stuff sort of uncritically, but even like, let's, let's, let's put our own stuff back under the microscope, <laughs> microscope, you know, like let's revisit this. Let's, Maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's more to this story too. So anyway. I had a recipe that I had been working on for a number of years. I wanted to do like a rice pudding, but with bulgur wheat. And Mm -hmm. uh, it had always like, I couldn't get it cooked right. And I was trying to cook it in coconut milk and it was just like challenging. And I really wanted to do it. And I just like, it was an idea and I tabled it. And it was like, Three years later, when Alex on Ideas and Food did his like ramenized rice, like, oh, prehydrate your grains by soaking them in water with baking soda. And then they cook in like five minutes, like he was making his three minute risotto. I was like, I bet that would work. And I just took the bulgur and soaked it in water with baking soda for like 90 minutes and then drained it off. And I was able to just heat coconut milk and throw it in in like five minutes. It completely cooked. And then yeah. was able to put it in the fridge and it it soaked it up and it got there. But previously I had trouble. I was scorching the product and it wasn't cooking. And it was just like, I had this idea and I knew it, I hoped it could work, but I just needed something to connect the dots. And it wasn't until I saw that one thing that I had that aha moment, you know? Totally. It's so, and I've had this kind of thing with trying to cook grains, dry grains in milk or, you know, coconut milk or Something about the presence of, I don't know whether it's the fats or the proteins or, you know, whatever that can interfere with the, with the absorption of um, water. And really, you know, in a way, if you were to put one pot of those grains in the same volume of, of water and in milk and the cooking times, like the whole thing just falls apart in the milk. I've, I've had that with rice pudding. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And then there's like some, Something I was messing around with white rice pudding recently because I've had that same problem. Sometimes I'll just you know screw around and like not. I have fun improvising in the kitchen. I, I think it's a good thing for everyone to do whatever the failures are. And I've had like batches of rice pudding before where like just keep adding more milk and I keep adding more milk and I keep adding and it's like swelling and swelling and swelling and swelling, but still not cooking. It's still not cooking. Like what is going on with this stuff? I just can't believe that this is happening. And then it's like, Oh yeah. Prehydrate the grain. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. It was a revelation. I want to go back to the olive oil. So can you put olive oil in the blender? Like, does that make it bitter or affect it negatively? Because, you know, I come from like, you work in a a kitchen and it's like, oh, let's make the vinaigrette. We'll throw it in the Vitamix and blend it up. It'll stay emulsified for three days. And then some people are like, my God, you can't do that. You're going to ruin the olive oil. What's, what can you tell me about that? You can, you can, but not always. (laughs) And all right. The first thing that causes a lot of confusion is like, what are we even talking about when we say blending olive oil makes it more bitter? Because already this is a potentially problematic question and conversation because olive oil can be spicy. Like get that back of the throat burn. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the, is that the bitterness we're talking about? Is it something else? I think it's something else. Uh, so I think that already it's, it's very hard and particularly, you know, if I think most of us are not olive oil experts (laughs) to the degree that one can be. And so even being able to tease apart, like 
what are we even talking about here? What's the quality that might get exacerbated in a negative way that we want to avoid? And I think there's a lot of potential confusion just around what we're, what we're trying to detect. So that spiciness is not a bad thing necessarily. Like I think if you survey an American audience, most American consumers prefer a less spicy olive oil, but like in the world of olive oil an olive oil expert would tell you like that is not a negative. Like that thing is not necessary. They're depending on where the olives are grown and, you know, all of this stuff, you may have more of that burn, less of that burn, but that is not a good or a bad. That's just a, you may have, you know, you're, what's the, you know, what's the. Like it is like, that's just the way it's supposed to be for that oil. Yeah. 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 And if, in some applications you might want that heat and in other applications it might be too aggressive and you just as a cook need to decide. So it's something else and it's, it's bitterness that is very easily confused with the burn, but it's different from the burn. And that bitterness is from polyphenols that are in the um, oil that my understanding is they develop as a kind of um, like a defense mechanism in the plant. The, the harsher the kind of conditions the olives grown in, this is, this is something that was explained to me by the same um, expert I'd mentioned before, this, the, this food scientist who works for an olive oil company, the harsher the growing conditions and other sort of agricultural conditions have sort of a, a correlation with the level of, um, of polyphenols. So polyphenols, which Nick Sharma had <laughs> figured out and which this food scientist tipped me off to are water soluble. This is the thing when you get into this question of blending olive oil, that is sort of the key that, um, it's hard to figure out if you're just sort of sniffing around this issue blindly, like people have anecdotally reported that, Blending olive oil makes it bitter. And other people have said, I've never noticed this. What's going on? Um, and it seemed there may be some level of um, an individual's ability to taste, uh, to detect the bitterness. Although part of my recent testing was I got one of these um, like super taster bitterness sensitivity kits. I just bought one online, like off Amazon. And I ranked, which surprised me because I didn't think I would, um, I ranked as a super taster for bitter. Super taster, to be clear for anyone who's listening, is not a good thing. It does not mean you have a better palate than anyone else. It means you literally have more taste buds for certain flavors that just like salty taste saltier to you. Bitter tastes more bitter to you. Sweet tastes sweeter to you. It doesn't mean you can, you know, like a, with a wine, you can pick out more aromas in the wine. That's an entirely different question of smell, scent, scent perception, not a question of taste perception. And yeah, so being a super taster is not a good thing. It's you, you kind of want to be in the middle of the pack there. Um, statistically, you know, <laughs> you want to be a normal taster. You don't want to have a lack of sensitivity. You don't want to have a, a heightened sensitivity. So um, I was actually surprised that I ranked as a super taster there. But that also indicated that I should have a, a sensitivity to this bitter. Like I should notice it if it's there, I guess. <clears throat> Assuming this kit tested for the exact, you know, something similar enough to what I was, you know, one, what you might taste in the olive oil. So I, I realize I'm making this a long story long. <laughs> this no is, worries. This is, this is interesting. This is a problem when you talk to, you know, you get the nerds on. Uh, so 
when I was originally exploring this, my the explanations that I had seen for why blending olive oil made it bitter indicated it had to do with some sort of mechanical, <clears throat> strictly mechanical action that was happening with the blender and molecules in the oil. And people were already sort of pointing to the polyphenols, but it was something about the blades. And I, w- I did all these tests where I blend, blend oil and, you know, all these blind tastings and didn't seem like anybody could really, you know, with any consistency tell which oil had been blended and which one hadn't. So what it, se- what it actually seems to come down to is it's not just the blending, it's the blending in the presence of some kind of, you know, water, whether it's vinegar or lemon juice or literally water, you need water because the polyphenols are water soluble. And if you take an oil that has a high polyphenol level and you blend it with water, which one might do with a vinaigrette or a mayo, the polyphenols will find the water and dissolve in the water and the water I, there's still a lot that's really not, I think, understood about this, but you, somehow your tongue gets quicker access to them through them being in the water interface versus the fat phase. But what's tricky about this is it also depends on the oil because not all oils have the same polyphenol levels. And so it, there's a lot that I think also comes down to what oil you're using. Unfortunately, it's not easy to know polyphenol levels in oils as a consumer. So there's basically like, not an easy answer. I think the I think the ultimate answer is it's better when in doubt to avoid blending an oil in the presence of any kind of water. But if you have a habit of doing it, if you tend to stick to the same brands and it hasn't been bothering you, then keep doing it. I've never noticed a problem. None of my customers ever had. I make a vinaigrette. I have a standard ratio. I always use the same oil for like a vinaigrette. And everyone always says, this is amazing. I love this. What's the recipe for your vinaigrette? And not one person has ever said, yuck. But I buy nice olive oils from someone in town who has an olive oil shop. She went to Italy. She's taken a certification in education of olive oil. And she was kind of like appalled when I told her like, yeah, this is my recipe. And I put it in the blender. She's like, don't ever do that. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Like I've never had an issue right. with it and it's delicious. That's where this, this is where this whole thing started for me was I kept reading it and I was like, this just hasn't been an issue for me. Like what's going on. And it, so it's, it's the intersection of the specific oil, the presence of water, maybe the individual's genetics, some combination of these things sometimes makes it a problem. It's not always a problem. Food is weird. Food is weird. <laughs> that also gets, you know, it's like that thing I was saying before where it's like you can like develop a recipe. I'm sure you've had this, right? Like, you think you have it all figured out. And then like one day, one thing changes and it's just kind of like not quite there. And you're like, what, what went off the rails here? And I think that, you know, that's always an interesting thing to me because like part of my job is putting recipes out into the world where other people cook them. Not without, you know, I'm not present to see how they go about it. What do they shop for? What have they brought home? What's their cooking equipment? Um, you know, gear makes a huge difference. The specifics of the pots, the pans, the the size, the you know, the surface area of any given, all of that's, you know, what's the heat on the stove? What's the type of, is it, you know, is it gas? Is it induction? Is it a electric? All of these things, all of it makes a difference. Is there oven accurate? Like, and, you know, you don't have any control over that 
And, um, you know, some people really like don't follow a recipe. Read the comment section. It's like, this recipe is good, but I found that I needed to add an extra quarter cup of sugar. And then I don't like vinegar so much. So I swapped in lemon juice. Like that's like the comment section on any recipe website, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's kind of, it's become this kind of cliche thing. I don't mind if people at all, if, if anybody changes a recipe, like I think that's, I support that. Like I actually encourage it. I think that's, that's how we, that's how we become our own cooks. I definitely mind if someone changes a recipe and then they comment saying the recipe was a problem, right? That's, that's sort of, (laughs) that's offensive (laughs) Um, to shift the blame back to the recipe. If they've already made all sorts of uh, executive decisions that, that are different. Ingredients aren't always the same though. Like I noticed um, I had, there was a cookbook I was cooking from this summer and it was something about, roasting a zucchini or an eggplant or something like that. And it said to roast it for five minutes and then it was going to be tender. And then you're supposed to make like a dip out of it. But I think that that person probably went to like the farmer's market and got like this small zucchini or, or, you know, I had the zucchini. It ended up taking me like 30 minutes to get it to tender. Like, thankfully I have the knowledge where I'm like, there's no way that's going to be done in five minutes. Right. But, you right. know, whatever right. they were working with clearly was a smaller, maybe an heirloom. And it was just like, no, no, I, I normally like to follow a recipe to the T the first time, but like that is just not going to work out at all. I would say this is such an important point that you're making. And I think it's for anyone following a recipe. If it's a well-written recipe, the times in most cases are the least important piece of information hopefully they're in the ballpark of being right. But the times, there's some things where the time matters to it, you know, with precision and the recipe should kind of make that clear. But in most cases, like the things you're describing, what's important is the doneness. What I call, what, what rest, I think commonly in the industry is called like uh, the doneness cue. What's the sign that this thing is ready? And it, sh- this, it should be a combination of visuals, of texture, transformation, of color. Well, that's visuals of uh, smells sometimes, harder to describe, but important. That's all that matters. You know, like you're saying, if you have a recipe and it says roast this zucchini at, uh, you know, 350 degrees for five minutes until it's tender, and you put your zucchini in the oven for whatever reason, whether the recipe developer's oven wasn't calibrated correctly or your oven's not calibrated correctly or your zucchini has a different, um, you know, dimension or size than theirs, whatever the thing is, it's the until tender that matters. It's not the five minutes, the 10 minutes. You know, if I saw a recipe and it said roast this thing for five minutes and it's like it takes 30 minutes or 40 minutes, something's really Somebody yeah. effed up. <laughs> yeah. um, but like their, my favorite their... cheat, my favorite cheesecake recipe says like till it's wobbly in the center. And I think it gives you a marker of like 20 to 25 minutes. And it's never been 20 to 25 minutes for me. And I just know <laughs> now that like when I make it, I'm looking at a 30 to 35 minute window probably because it's still way too jiggly at that 20 to 25 minutes. And I've just, you know, I've made it so many times now that I know that's what it needs to be. Yeah, you figured out. And that's an interesting, you know, wobbly in the center is a helpful cue, but maybe also vague, right? Like, how how wobbly in the center are we talking about, right? So that a recipe writer 
hopefully tries to think about that too, to be more specific. Like I'd have to, you know, you'd have to sort of look at as the recipe developer, look at your cheesecake at that moment of perfection. Like, how do I describe this so that someone who's making it for the first time has, you know, a shot at like sort of pulling it at the right moment. Um, but yeah, at the times, and you know, ovens are just terrible. Like ovens <laughs> yeah. are yeah. What, what rack is it on? Like, is it oh calibrated? Do you have an oven thermometer? So many variables that go into that. So many variables, you know, we just did this, um, a bunch of shoe pastry recipes and we've not been in the office cause of uh, COVID for, um, you know, the past year, but we did one day back in December when rates were still low in New York city. Um, and we were all masked, you know, took lots of precautions. One day of photo shoots with just a very small three of us. And the ovens in the series seats test kitchen are, are, I'll just, they're fickle. <laughs> and I've known that, but it had been a year practically since I'd used them. So I'd also sort of forgotten a little bit, like exactly how to make them work, but the shoe completely exposed. Even I had, I had probe thermometers in every oven so I could track the temperature. I can make sure whatever the, you know, the setting on the oven dial was like, that was, you know, just pick a number out of a hat. As long as the number on the, on the thermometer <laughs> was telling me like, this is what it is. Um, I had them all set so that they were properly calibrated following the probe thermometers. And I had backup thermometer, like, you know, up the wazoo and the shoe, this doesn't, with a lot of things, this wouldn't matter, but it mattered with the shoe, the recovery time when you open the oven door to put the shoe in to bake. And these ovens were way too slow to recover. So if you put, you know, I was doing Gougere and Chouquette and stuff like that. If you put them in and uh, gosh, off the top of my head, I'm not remembering 425, whatever the temperature was for the oven. If I had it set and totally like it was locked in at 425 and holding pretty well, open the oven door, slide the train, close it. We're talking what, like five seconds max oven door open. Oven temperature drops 50 degrees. We're down at now like 375, 360, something like that. And I'm standing there and I'm the cooking time on the shoe should be about 25, 30 minutes or less. I don't know, 20, 25. I'm looking at the thermometer. Come on, come on, go back up, go back, come on, go. And it's just like 361, 362, 361. And you're going, oh, no, no, come on. You can't do this to me. Just not getting there. The recovery time, you know, that just with something like shoot and my, the, some of the initial batches, and this is after I completely worked out the recipe, tested it, you know, at home with also with a calibrated oven, like everything worked that just completely screwed it. And um, then I had to say, okay, well, what am I going to do? Well, I need to spike the oven temperature so that I'm at, 525 so that what when i open the oven door it's gonna fall you know 525 is too high but whatever 500 so it's gonna fall and then as soon as i close the oven door and it's dropped to around 425 i'm gonna reset the oven to hold just to hold there so it can be really this stuff can make can have a huge impact and how many home cooks have are, are likely to have any level of awareness on on how like their ovens are operating on that level? Not many at all. I mean, it's something I, mean, yeah. I don't even really think about as much. 
you know? So no, I hadn't I was, either until this particular situation, like made me realize that I needed to like, yeah. I want to jump back. You had said something about revisiting recipes. How often do you revisit old recipes? And when do you decide something needs an update? Like, you're just randomly thinking, oh, meatloaf, let me see what we have on our website. And you're like, oh, I want to make this meatloaf even better. Like, how does that process work? Because I'm sure you update recipes or post new mm-hmm. versions of of old things. What's that look like? There's only so much bandwidth we have. So even like finding the time to circle back on recipes. One of the reasons that olive oil story wasn't a recipe, but it was still, a, you know, something that required testing and time. One of the reasons I had 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 that, like I knew that there was like more to this story and there was this old article sitting on the sentence, like I just have to go back and update it. I just wasn't finding the time. And it was Nick's coming and being like, I have this stuff to write about this. And I was like, well, I need to get my article, like, <laughs> you know, lined up for that. Um, uh, so part of it is just finding the time. Anytime there's any kind of consistent comment on a recipe, where people are reporting a problem. I mean, that's a real clear, that's a real indicate, real clear indication that uh, you need to um, go back at it. <laughs> I, I like to talk about failures because I think it's important for people to know that like, you know, we all mess up. So several years ago, there was this um, interim period before Stella Parks um, had been our full-time pastry wizard where there was, we didn't really have anybody who did pastry baking. I'm not a baker, you know, I just, I know I just said I did a whole shoe thing with a colleague of mine, Christina Razone, but um, mostly I'm not a baker. Kenji's not really a baker. Like he's done some breads and things like that, but it's not his forte either. I, I don't think he'd be offended hearing me say that. And, uh, and Stella wasn't on staff yet, but we like knew we needed to do some, some baking stuff and, and we were missing a zucchini bread recipe. And I said, I'll do it. And I did research and I saw that like, almost all zucchini breads follow the same basic formula. It's a, you know, it's pretty standard and almost in some ways, like the serious eats mindset kind of undid me here. I was like, well, I got to find some way to innovate on this. <laughs> what's, what's the new kind of, what's the smart trick here or something. This was a, this was a lesson for me. You don't always need a smart trick. Sometimes things are just like make a solid version of it and like walk away <laughs> And uh, I developed this, I, you know, I was like, well, a lot of zucchini breads are kind of greasy because they have a lot of oil and I'm going to f- replace the fat with like Greek yogurt. And I, you know, and I tested it and like my tests, I got them to work, um, but I'm not a baker, you know, and I don't understand as well where things can go off the rails. And uh, over time, you know, they're like, some people would comment on that recipe and be like this, I love this zucchini bread. And other people were like, this was a disaster. And, and I, at first I was confused because I was like, well, gosh, some, this really worked. And for some people, probably the people where it's a disaster, like they've done something wrong, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, any, this is like, you know, my, my own, bi- you know, one's own bias. Like you look for the positive signs to reinforce the position, not the negative ones. Uh, but eventually actually it was the kitchen.com did a review of zucchini breads and they just completely body slammed my zucchini bread, bread recipe. It was rough. And in this case, they were just not. I, they were not wrong. And it was like, finally, that was the sort of like the moment where it was like, we, we've got to replace this recipe. Like I should not have either. I shouldn't have been the person to develop it or sh- I should not have been so, so confident in my ability to just completely rethink like the, the chemistry of zucchini bread with my limited baking experience. And so we have an entirely new zucchini bread recipe on the site that Christina Razone, who also 
worked with me on the shoe package uh, developed um, that fully replaced mine. So sometimes it's the comments. Sometimes it's like, I'm always working on new recipes, so it's hard to find the time to cook my own, like go back and cook my own stuff. But sometimes if we're doing like a, you know, we'll add a video later, like let's say, you know, I have a meatball. You, I think you mentioned yeah. the meatball recipe. Well, yeah. So I just saw like the meatball recipe is the newest recipe. Like I'm sure, you know, in the history of the world, there's a million meatball recipes. So like, why is there now a meatball recipe as like the most ah. recent one? So this one is, this one is spaghetti with meatballs. So it's specifically crafted for being served with pasta. Whereas my original meat, like Italian American meatball and red sauce recipe was really like, if you get like a, just a plate of like hulking meatballs with sauce and like cheese grated on top without the pasta. And that was always a recipe that one could make work for spaghetti with meatballs, but there was no instruction for how to do it. And it had tricks in it that I think like they're cool and they make like a, you know, maybe like a small bump in the final result, but like for like spaghetti with meatballs, do you really need to like whip out every last trick? Not necessarily. So it was a little bit in this case, like streamlining that recipe and, and, creating a set of instructions expressly for serving on pasta. So that is why that exists. But I did a vid. So I had my meatball recipe. I tested the crap out of it. Like I was very happy with the result. I did a video like a year or two later adding, you know, adding videos to the site and YouTube for like, how do you make this thing? And I had gone to my local butcher and had them grind for me fresh the meat. As opposed to prior to that, I think I bought it every time, almost in my testing, like Whole Foods or something. And um, the butcher had run the meat through the coarsest dye of the grinder. And I hadn't noticed until I got, you know, it's like you're standing at the counter, they're grinding it for you, you know, and I got it. I unpackaged it for the video shoot and I saw it was a coarse grind and it honestly didn't set, set off any alarms for me. But I made those meatballs and they were like good, but they were just not quite as good. They were like, just was like not quite there. So sometimes it's like remaking a recipe and, and because you've gone to a different store or like gotten something, you realize there's some detail that your original recipe just didn't find. Uh, so it was like, oh, okay. Like not only do I need to specify the fat percentage on this meat, I need to stress the importance of the the grind size, um, but you know, maybe that anybody listening is like, duh, like that's super obvious. But like when you're thinking about a recipe in all the dimension, different dimensions of recipe, you know, I was thinking about the panade, fresh bread, breadcrumbs. How do I soak the panade? How do I mix it? There's so many things. It's very easy to like gloss over. So it's like, well, the meat, I just know I need this fat percentage and it's ground and, and you just, you know, you miss that detail. So sometimes it is like remaking something and having it not even for yourself, be like, wait, what's going on? This isn't how I remember being quite like, it's good. I'm not upset with this, but like it was spectacular. And now it's like pretty good. You know what? Like, yeah, what that's the not the way you, you don't want to move in that direction. No. Yeah. So then it, so I think sometimes circling back on recipes, is like stuff like that. So it's either like somebody sort of tells you like, I cooked this recipe and I had these problems and you're like, all right, I need to like double check that. We've always been a, 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 I think, a shoestring operation at Series Seats, but we were acquired by Dot Dash back in um, September, I think. Um, Dot Dash owns the Sprue Seats, and it also they acquired Simply Recipes. They have Liquor.com, and we have a different resource situation now, I would say. And so we've always 
heavily, heavily tested everything, but everything was kind of in-house. You know, Kenji's recipes, he would just test to death. I would test mine to death. We weren't spending the money to ship the recipes out and have a third party cross test everything. And now we are like, that's now part of our system. So, and that, you know, that doesn't solve everything either. Like you can still have problems crop up in a published recipe, even when you've gone through all of that. And I, you know, I've worked enough places. Like I know that that's uh, worked at food and wine where we had a, you know, full-time test kitchen testing everything multiple times. um, And sometimes still, you know, people will cook the recipe at home and find something that's not working. It's, you said it before. There are a lot of variables. There, yeah, you know, I've even an incredible and I've, I've, number of variables. Yeah, I've had trouble sometimes with recipes just not coming out for whatever reason the same way, and it's always like, what what happened? You know, things that you just I don't know. You, yeah, sometimes you cook the same thing yourself. Sometimes you don't. You know, I use the example of you go shopping in a different place, and like one ingredient is different. Sometimes it's not even that. It's just like sometimes it's just. I think you know you can drive yourself crazy with this, and I think as a recipe developer, a professional, you know, cook we have to concern ourselves with it and figure out, figure it out as best we can. I think there's also something that's important for home cooks to not find that a source of frustration or a source of, you know, feeling defeated. Like, Oh, if these guys are talking about these challenges, like this is hopeless. Yeah. Um, I would encourage instead a kind of like find liberation in that because perfection at every turn is not, that's not real. That doesn't happen for anybody. And most of it isn't noticeable. Um, You know, it's interesting. It's like my wife Mm. used to be a cook. Um, She's not anymore, but she's someone who will help me at an event. And, you know, we'll get on site because I cook in people's homes and I'll forget an ingredient or I'll say, crap, I forgot to pull that out of the oven. It's overcooked. She's like, nobody's going to notice. Like you realize that, right? Like this is you on that level of like, it needs to be at this standard. And I get that, but like those people are going to have an amazing dinner and it's like a, a 1% problem. And like, you just need to like breathe and move on. Like uh, most people who are eating and cooking, like they're not going to notice the, the tenderness. It's like 5% less juicy or something. Like I might be able to make it a little better, but you know, where's that margin of error or just let it go? It's very true. It's very true. When you're standing there obsessing over how every last thing turns out, you know, you notice these things, but it's such a good point. You know, most folks are not these days, obviously with the virus, this isn't necessarily the case so much, but you know, it, it's a communal act. It's a social act, uh, you know, a familial one with friends. You're having fun. You're having conversation the food is important potentially, but it's not, you know, everyone is not sitting there. Like I actually, I used to be, um, when I was in college, I worked as an extra at the Metropolitan Opera. This is one of my, Oh, uh, that's interesting. It's how I made my pocket money in college. And, um, we used to joke, uh, sometimes people in the audience would send in letters to the opera and they'd be like, I was watching Tosca. And when the, person on the you know stage right pulled out the scroll of the map i saw through my binoculars that that was not a period you know historically accurate map for that period it was off by 20 years because the border had changed and we would say look if anybody 
at the opera is complaining about that. Uh, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. And, you know, we're, I was an extra. I didn't, can't take credit for much of what was going on at the opera, but like, if that's the problem, you know? So, and of course at dinner, you know, and eating, it's a bigger problem if the food is messed up, but um, there's so much more that's going on. Well, and, and like, have you ever tried to make something fancy and it wasn't as good because like nostalgia is so much a part of it. Like my favorite recipe growing up is this casserole my mom made and it's shell macaroni and ground beef and you cook like peppers and onions and it, it gets like canned tomato sauce and canned cream corn and it calls for canned mushrooms and just like cheddar cheese that was like pre-shredded. So, you know, like being the chef, like years later, it's like, well, I'm going to make my own tomato sauce using San Marzano. So I'm going to get like an extra sharp cheddar. I'm going to swap out mayatakis, you know, like and fresh corn. It's not the same. Like I don't enjoy it because for me, it doesn't taste anything like that. Now, maybe I'd make it for you and you would love it. But for me, it's like, no, right. like it's it just, all wrong. it's yeah. all, it's all wrong. Even though I used yeah. like the best ingredients tweaked it. Um, like who uses canned mushrooms? Like I don't use them for anything, but I've gone back to like, when I make this, it's not even the same as if I just like cook my own button mushrooms down. So it's just like when I want that and want to have that association, I need to make it like th- buy that, that recipe. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, it's so much of these, um, you know, what is like taste, right? Like taste is a, is largely a learned thing. Like you could probably argue that certain, there are certain things that are, that are more innate, (laughs) less learned. You know, we have a certain salt, you know, biological requirement for salt and we're sort of dialed into sort of our salt preference kind of, you know, nicely aligns with our physical need for salt. But most of it, it's just learned, right? Like most of it is just like, what did we, what were we exposed to? What are the associations we have with it? That's a gross simplification, but there's a lot of truth to that. Like there's a lot of truth. It's one of the things that I, you know, I'm not a picky eater at all and never have been, but it's, it's such a helpful thing to remind oneself. If you're, if you're trying a food that is new and like, it's something that maybe is like intimidating for whatever reason, if you didn't grow up with a certain organ meat or a certain I don't know, whatever the example is, a certain kind of fish. And for some people that's like, you know, really scary. It's just like, you know, for a lot of other people, this is like, this is like cereal in the morning. Like there is just, this is the most like normal thing in the world. And it's, what's the difference? The difference is like the, maybe they'll just the lack of exposure, the lack of, there's just, isn't that lived experience within. So it's It just takes a different place in one's mind. Maybe it's all just learned. But I guess, you know, maybe I am going to be a hypocrite here because when someone tells me how they make something and it just seems like a bad recipe, the first thing I want to do is correct that. Like, I have a very dear friend who last week we were talking about like one pot meals. So the next time I saw her, she gave me this recipe for this beef stroganoff and it uses ground beef, but you physically cook the egg noodles in the broth. And I was having a panic attack. It's like, well, cook the ground beef and drain the the grease off and then add the broth and then just put the noodles in. And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, like, why would you not just cook the noodles in a separate pot? Like it literally doesn't have to be one pot. And my wife's like, just say, thank you. Be nice. I'm like, but I like, there's part of me that like, 
has to say there's like a better way to do this. Yeah, like I'm getting stressed just talking about this, like, you know, and, but maybe it's like a nostalgic thing and that's the only way she's ever had it. But I'm like, like, where do these recipes come from? Who creates a recipe like that? I don't even understand the concept of that. It's, it's maddening to me. I think it's sort of like carrying both of these things with you at the same time, right? Like it's not one or the other. There's the like, this is all subjective. Taste is subjective. Taste is learned. It's, you know, reflections of like geographic, historical, cultural forces, like all of these things. But then it's also like, it also like, it's what constructs our reality. Even if we sort of intellectually know the subjectivity of it, there are a million things we all walk around with like incredibly strong opinions about that. Like if you stop to think, you know, but that doesn't make the opinions invalid, right? Like it's sort of, that's, that's sort of the fabric of our, of our culture. I think it's good to hold both, I guess, right? They, these, these things that are in direct opposition to each other, they can coexist and we can hold one and be very invested in it, subject these opinions. <laughs> and we can make all sorts of arguments about why they're right. Very compelling ones. Sometimes ones that you can prove through some level of empiricism might actually be, you know, pretty compelling arguments. And also an awareness of like, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, like what's what's going on? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think yeah. that's about the, the empiricism thing is interesting because I think there are things that you really can measure, right? Like, like you were talking about the meat before, like how how juicy is that piece of meat? How much moisture is lost through some method of cooking or some treatment? And if we say, well, you know, the, the more moisture that's present in a piece of meat, the more we we generally will perceive it as juicy. And if, if we're going to agree for the moment that that's a good thing, then, okay, then that's desirable. And you can certainly, whether or not it's a good thing, that's the subjectivity is one thing, but like that it actually happens. That's the empirical thing. This is a tricky one because I, a long time ago, when I first started working at Siri Seats, I had done some, I developed some recipe and published it. And there was a commenter who, you know, I think, I think he just wasn't like sold on me yet. Maybe he still isn't. I have no idea. Maybe, <laughs> but he definitely wasn't sold on me. At the You're time. no Kenji. Yeah. It was very much like prove yourself. And he was like, how do I, how can we possibly know? I'm going to make, I don't remember what the recipe is. So I'll make it up. How do we, how can we possibly know that your corn soup is the best corn soup? if you haven't done blind tastings like of every like element of this recipe. And it was like, if I'm trying to figure out which way of handling the corn leads to the maximizing the sweetness of the corn, I think you can, you know, you can test that sign, you know, you can use science there, but like which corn soup is the most delicious. Well, I don't know. Like who are the tasters? do I want my recipe to be informed by them? Like possibly. Yeah. It's always good to get people to taste your food, get their opinions, their feedback taken into consideration. Ultimately though, these more subjective decisions are like, they're kind of on the cook, right? Like you have to find, you have to, you have to sort of decide like, this is where I want it to be. And either other people will taste it and say, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think this is great. Or they're going to be like, no, this is not for me. And that's, those are both fine but you you can't test everything and you can't, you can't, you know, if this is like developing recipes by committee or like creating art by committee, 
there's always this tension, right? Because the yeah. input of others, like getting more than one opinion is really important and helpful. But also like you, you don't arrive at like a great thing strictly by committee, right? Because there's a anything that pushes a little bit in one direction or another outside of the, the center <laughs> for that group of people is going to get pulled back towards the center by that group of people. Sometimes that's good, but that's not always good. Well, like I would have to teach my cooks and chefs how to critique a dish for, you know, things that are clearly right and wrong. Like we're in Maryland yes. and everyone uses Old Bay. And I would taste something, I would say there's too much Old Bay. And they say, well, this is Maryland. This is how we like it. It's like, okay, let's step back. Old Bay is two things. It's spicy and it's salty. This is too salty. This has too much spice. I don't want to hear that like we're in Maryland and that's how it is. Like you have to, on some level, understand that this is not an appropriate level of Old Bay in this product, right? Like you might like that personally, but like if we're serving this to customers, it's outside the range of like what would be quote unquote normal or acceptable, right? And that's kind yeah. of hard to like teach people, especially if they don't have a lot of culinary training. But like, how do you talk about food? Because we would do tastings before, you know, a pre-service. And everyone would just kind of say, like, they don't want to uh, hurt anyone's feelings. This is good. Oh, yeah, this is good. And like, I'd watch five people try something and I would get to it as like, like, did no one think that this was a problem? Like, do you not understand how to articulate what is wrong with something or what could be better? Like, how can we give critical feedback on a dish mm -hmm. and make it better and realize like, this is probably not going to be good for everyone's taste. Yeah. The critic it's, it's sort of, you want that feedback and there are some things like this is too salty where I think you can really make a pretty strong case that like, yes, there's going to be some subset of people who don't find it too salty, but there's going to be more people who find it too salty. And that's a problem because too salty is like for, it's, it's going to be inedible for those people or it's going to be extremely unpleasant. Um, and then there are other ones where it's like, it's, yeah, it's, there's, it's more of an opinion and you want that feedback because some, you know, a lot of the times you hear it and you're like, yeah, you know what, you're right. I think this could, we could dial this in a little bit more. And I agree, I agree with this feedback. And then other times people are going to say things where it's like, I think this should be like that. And as the cook, you're like, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, no, I'm not saying you're wrong. But that's not what I want this to be. And I'm the one, it's my recipe, so. I had a cook who like, liked to eat vegetarian a lot. And he and I would always fight about he had never put ham in split pea soup. And I'm like, I've never not had ham in split pea soup. And that's one of those things that just like, it could go either way. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because, you know, like, we just have to decide, is it going to be vegetarian or is it going to have ham? But at the core, like the base soup is a good soup, right? And that's just a, a decision you make. I think, so, yeah, I mean, something that I, I, I think is really important to keep in mind is also, you know, it's like, who's judging a given recipe? And, I, you know, there's no rule that's like only certain people can know what's good for one thing or another. But something that we've done a lot at Siri Seats over the years is like the umami bombs and, you know, enhancing flavor at every turn. And there's a lot of really cool stuff with that. There's a lot of cool tricks that one can use that, that make delicious food. But I, you know, I've tried to check myself a little bit with some recipes because it's like, why is the assumption that more flavor is always better? That's a, that's a really flawed premise. If you look at any kind of creative thing, 
you know, whether you consider food art or not, but like if it's music or so much of what the most skilled people do is not just add, 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 they remove, right? Take things away. What's, what's creating too much noise here? What's creating, and there's no one answer because these things are also like culturally, they're personal, they're culturally dependent. Japan is something like Japanese cuisine is sometimes like an easy example for me with this to think about where the importance of texture in some situations is, and this is just my understanding. Like maybe I don't, maybe I don't fully have this, you know, texture is just has, has, has a much more prominent role in a lot of dishes next to flavor. And there can be situations where you may have a dish that like somebody who's not familiar with the cuisine may say, this just doesn't have much flavor. Like I don't get it. I don't like it. Or I don't, you know, it's, it doesn't taste like much. And it's like, because this is really about quieting the flavor and let's focus on the texture here. And again, I'm not an expert in Japanese cuisine, so I'm a little bit maybe talking out of turn, but I, these, it's like, who, by whose standards are we going by? And I think that's a really, really important. And obviously like food media has been, been scrutinized a lot in the past year plus for a variety of, of problems and the food industry in general that, that really need, need um, attention. And uh, this is just one very small piece of it, but this idea of like, who's, who gets, who gets to determine in this question of like, like what is good? What is, whose standards are we applying? How does that work? Is really something that is, um, and it's not easy. There's no easy answer, but it's also like you can't you can't be blind to that, right? You can't just. It's very easy to steamroll every recipe and just be like, Dude, you know, I'm a good cook and I have a good palate and I know what good is, and it's like really. Well, I think it's hard when you don't when you're not familiar with a cuisine, especially like if I didn't grow up eating Filipino food and I just made a recipe, like there was a Filipino recipe, it would be easy for me to say like, oh, this needs like a crunch component or this needs more spice or something. But like, that's not how it's supposed to be or has been traditionally, right? And I think so many people get into the tinkering mode or the overly judgmental mode because it doesn't fit the model of like, you know, you learned as a chef that everything needs to have some sweet, some salty, some acid, some crunch, but like not every cuisine is made up like that. And I, the tendency could be to just say like, well, I, it shouldn't be like that. It needs to have something, but like, do we need to tinker with like a 2000 year old recipe or technique? Uh, not necessarily. Yeah. And, and who, you know, the question of who, kind of should feel comfortable doing that and who should maybe be a little bit more careful about how they go about doing that. And, you know, it also depends. Is it in your own home? Is it something that you're putting out in the world for, you know, sort of mass consumption? There's, there's a lot of, I think, different layers to it because, you know, food and wine just had this happen, right. Where they, and they've been kind of, you know, people I think have been giving them sort of some level of praise for how they handled the situation where they um, uh, published a recipe for a mole and through a kind of visual consideration um, in the, you know, I guess in the spur of the moment at the photo shoot or something, I, I think is my, what I gleaned from the article, they decided to douse bright red hot sauce to add this like pop of color on it and um, obviously ended up being a problem. And then they, they published a, a thoughtful kind of piece taking, you know, responsibility for this bad decision and, and 
trying to be reflective about it. In that case, it was a visual kind of impulse to add add something. <laughs> uh, and you know, and the chef said, "Hey, you know what? Like this, you've completely misunderstood what this is all about by doing that. Like just just fundamentally, like I've been living this this dish my whole life, trying to understand it, and in like one just like sloppy motion, you kind of just you know, crapped all over it." And, I should be careful because this, I used to work for food and wine. These are mistakes that we all can make, right? It's not about um, singling them out. It's very easy to do this in, in overt ways in subtle ways in um, whether it's about how should something taste or how should something look or what does it need some crunch? Like the example you gave. Yeah, it's real hard. And then at the same time, you know, how, how does one have personal creativity that's respectful, you know, is sort of an interesting and I think really difficult question to have any kind of easy answer to, because the answer can also be everything has to just be static and nobody can change anything. Right. That well, I think it's that. when you're, when you're claiming it to be authentic, you know, there's gotta be some way of saying like, this is inspired by a mole or something. There was a period years ago at serious seats where, you know, the internet can kind of push certain impulses. Like, and so we were doing all, you know, we were testing things rigorously. We were doing deep research, you know, more than I think is the, the average for recipe development. But doing like what I would gener- like generally very proudly say is I think good work. But, you know, the impulse was so- to slap a lot of recipes with how to make the best this, the best that. You're, you're competing on the internet with all these other sites. You know, you've put so much work into it. You really believe in what you've done. You think you've kind of maximized in the way that were your goals for maximizing this recipe. And so why not call it the best X, Y, or Z? And, you know, in retrospect, like that's not, that's really not a great way to title anything. Even I think it's obviously there's a self-awareness that the, the best doesn't exist. And it's sort of the best is just speaking to the rigor that went into that recipe and sort of the best version that this developer thinks they, you know, came up with, but still it's, we don't call any, we don't do that anymore is really the point. Like we don't, I haven't developed a recipe in years where I've said how to make the best anything. The internet kind of sometimes plays to our worst impulses. And then, you know, you, st- you have a moment after some time you step back and you go, let's, let's cool it on that. Like we don't yeah. need to do that. That's actually not, it's not great. I don't feel good about this. I don't think this is a good way to go about this. Like let's not play this game anymore. Do you have any recipes that are notoriously... Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.